Hey everyone, and welcome to a perpetual feast here on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, a producer here at the Circe Podcast Network. And before we kick it over to the show with Wes Callahan and Andrew Kern, I just need to say a quick word from our sponsor. Roman Roads Media is a publisher of classical Christian curriculum designed for homeschoolers and homeschool co-ops. And they're back this year with a giveaway for Circe Podcast listeners. Each episode of Perpetual Feast, they're going to be giving away one of the 16 units from Wes Callahan's Old Western Culture Series, a high school video course that guides you through the great books of Western Civ. Complete with workbooks, discussion, questions, and readers, Wes Callahan draws from decades of teaching experience as he tells the story of Western civilization, integrating history, literature, theology, politics, philosophy, and so much more. Here's how to enter this giveaway. When this episode is posted on our Facebook page, on the Cersei Facebook page, leave a comment saying which unit of the Old Western Culture you would choose if you win. One of the comments will be drawn at random three days after the episode is posted. To browse the available titles in the Old Western Culture series, please visit www.romanroadsmedia.com. So thanks to our good friends over at Roman Roads Media for sponsoring this season of A Perpetual Feast, uh, especially with Wes Callahan being one of the co-stars of this show. We are really honored to continue partnering with Roman Roads and with Wes Callahan to make great content for you. We hope you really enjoy this season. Uh, so without further ado, I'll kick it over to Andrew Kern and Wes Callahan and their ongoing conversation of the works of Homer. Enjoy. goddess, sing of Achilles, Peleus' son's calamitous wrath, which hit the Achaeans with countless ills. Many the valiant souls it saw down off to Hades, souls of heroes, their selves left as carrion for dogs and all birds of prey. And the plan of Zeus was fulfilled. From the, fo- first, from the first moment those two men parted in fury, Atreus' son, king of men, and the godlike Achilles. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Wes, what's going on? Uh, not much. I, I, I recognize the passage you're reading, oddly enough. Sounds like <laughs> you're reading the opening of the Iliad. <laughs> yeah, it's from a translation that I've never read through all the way, and and um, it's the Peter Green translation. I mentioned it, I think, in our last episode, um, but I wanted uh, to see, and, and you can tell I'm reading it for the first time because of how clumsy I was, but yeah, I was reading the opening of the Iliad. What do, what do, you, what do you think of the Peter Green translation? Uh, it's way better than I could do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> likewise. Likewise. That's, Although, that's what I'm. That's what I'm always drawn up against, right? I mean, I can criticize these guys, but I don't know Greek. <laughs> but uh, uh, suppose, I mean, uh, it just suddenly occurred to me: uh, what if you know? What if you were to attempt a translation? Um, what would you be doing? I mean, you know, if you're attempting to translate, you, you learned enough Greek, you felt semi-comfortable, and you had to lose a lot of the helps and so on. Uh, you know, Greek dictionaries and concordances and commentaries, but. but what would you be doing if you're making a new translation? What would I be doing? That's that's, yeah. a, that's a general what a tra- question. What is a translator doing? Oh, I see. You know, I huh. mean, whatever a translator is doing, it's more than. I mean, we normally, we typically will say a translation is rendering the Greek into English, right? But, but, but I mean, that's 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 so superficial. I mean, what is what is the act of translation yes. doing? That's such a good question. And my, my thought as you're saying it 
has it's wandered all over. And I think I've settled on something that you said, rendering the Greek into English. And I would say rendering what was trying to be rendered into Greek into English, mm. which is of course a different thing, right? If you're going to translate something well, it's not going to be because you know what the words mean and can find a corollary word in your own language. It's because you're in the experience and the mind of the writer well enough that you can capture enough of it that you can express it into another language. So um, there's a, there's a, in Christian thought, I always find it helpful to come back to the Logos. There, there's always a, there's always a vivid but also hidden Logos in everything. And that's certainly true of a text. And when we talk about something as magnificent as Homer, um, there's something that Homer is looking at, you might say, something that Homer's contemplating, something that he's drawing into his mind and then putting into his language. Mm. And what we have to do is not try to take his language and put it into ours, but to, we have to figure out what is that thing he's seeing. And of course, even to say that thing is kind of absurd, but that's the best I can do to start with. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, I like that. And th yeah, we have to get into, um, <clears throat> there's so many things that a translator, translator has to uh, work at trying to get into, and he's never going to be fully successful. Um, uh, because part of it would be just living in the culture and knowing all the all the all the freighting and loading around words, right? You can look them up in a dictionary. I, I, an example I, I commonly use with my students when we're talking about this is, um, uh, and every language has these, but in English, um, the two words that uh, connotatively, that is using the dictionary, the lexical definition, and even their etymology are precisely the same. But denotatively, that is uh, the, the, the extra dictionary emotional loading and so on. In English, the two words, uh, statesman and politician. And so if I was trying to translate or, or, or somebody uh, in, uh, in another country is trying to translate something I'd written and I, and I was talking about a politician, he, he would have to be, be, uh, not just look up a dictionary, but, but read widely in, in 20th and 21st century American literature um, uh, and, and, and even, uh, and, and have some, he'd have to find some way of, of understanding how uh, we feel when we say politician, uh, a little bit of an element of sleaze, but when we say statesman, we've got Winston Churchill with the top hat. Um, but they mean exactly the same thing. A politician from Greek polos means state. So someone who works for the state, statesman, they mean exactly the same thing. So, you know, there, I, 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 I bring this up when I talk to my students about how there's really no such thing as true synonyms. Synonyms are really just things that are close, but there's such differences. And if I'm reading Homer, how do I, how do I uh, find out what he means such that I can, I'm not just importing modern definitions. How do I find out what he means about words like, uh, you know, like king or, or, or hero? Are you there? I'm here. I just I fell, into, oh. fell into a brown study, as they say. <laughs> well, that's because I'm glad you said that because I was thinking the same thing. Okay, so we've got we've got all these words, these English words that are meant to give us something of what Homer was seeing, what he was telling yeah. the world. Yeah. And in that is the phrase, um, "Many the valiant souls his wrath saw off down to Hades, 
Souls of Heroes. Yeah. Souls of Heroes. Okay. So when, when we say hero, we talk about football stars. We talk about uh, athletes. We talk about mostly, I think we probably talk about military heroes. Yeah. But let me just ask you then, since you're, since you're throwing this whole controversy about translation and making me feel discouraged about ever even reading Homer again. I'm sorry, Andrew, I would never want to be discouraged. <laughs> hey, I'm just, I, I got to just say, I, I'm so grateful for the people who translated Homer into English oh, because absolutely. I, I can't, I'm, I'm too old to ever be able to probably ever be able to actually read Homer in the Greek. Yeah. Unless, you know, just God opens up paths for me. But yeah it's such a gift to have these translations it is such it a blessing is. and a kindness of of, of, of those translators even if they made a lot of money and, I, and i'm sure they all did it for the money <laughs> but i'm so grateful and, and can i just throw in i may have mentioned uh, uh these before but um there are uh, there's a new translation of the iliad by um, a woman named carolyn alexander um that I've, I've been reading also. I read the Peter Green one. I've been reading this one. And I really, I like the Peter Green one. I really like this Carolyn Alexander one. Uh, and there's another new, uh, a very even more recent translation of the Odyssey um, uh, by a woman whose name has suddenly escaped me because I'm of the same age. I believe it's Emily something. Yeah. Emily yeah, Wilson. Emily Wilson. That's, that's right. She's the niece or something of, of, um, uh, of the uh, Anne Wilson, who is a, a great biographer. Um, <clears throat> but um yeah, and, and as I was reading this, I was re I was kind of my 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 belief was refreshed that reading many translations, just like reading many translations of the scriptures, is immensely valuable, precisely because we will never, in order to really re even even if we were uh, Andrew, even if you and I were really uh, had a great facility in ancient Greek, unless we could go back and live in ancient Greek next to Homer, uh, we really uh, um, can never truly understand what he had in mind. We can get close, and close is good enough, but uh, the more translations we read, the more angles we come at something, it's like triangulating something or looking out different windows in the same scene. And so like you, I'm, I'm, I'm immensely grateful for these translators who, um, uh, yeah, they did it for the money. Most of them never saw a penny. Some, like Alexander the Pope, retired on his translation, but that was unusual. Yeah, maybe a lot of them did, I don't know. Lucky guy. Lucky. Well, I'm looking... I'm looking across the table at a, a Toblerone bar that uh, I think David left sitting in here. I approve. And it's wrapped in aluminum foil. And I'm thinking to myself, I kind of get a Toblerone bar. <laughs> I can look up the ingredients and eat it and experience it. And I can kind of get it. But I will never fully grasp a Toblerone bar. And I'm okay with that because I can eat it and it tastes pretty good. So the fact that I'll never fully get Homer is to be expected. <laughs> I'm okay with that, but I love the fact that we still can eat it, right? Yeah. We, we still are given, we are still given enough to meditate on. And there's so much there to think about that it will always be a source of insight for us. And I'm, and I'm, I'm content with that. You know, there might be listeners who might be going in one or two directions from, from what we've been saying. One might be saying, well, if I can't get it, why would I ever read it? And my response to that is how well do you get your spouse? How do you, well, do you get your children? I mean, we don't, yeah. we aren't, we don't get life, right? We don't get it. What we do is we enjoy it. We receive it. It's a gift. And, and as we, 
as we participate in it, we we understand it better and better. Yeah, but we'll yeah. we are we we are we don't get it. <laughs> and we and then and other people are saying, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and we have no choice. I mean, those very same people, you know, why should I do it if I can't fully get it? Well, uh, do you do you read do you read the Bible? Um, yeah, do you do you do you get? Can you mm-hmm. fully get you know the Gospel of Saint John? Um, and and yet we and yet we have to we have to read it in translation unless someone's a really profound Greek scholar. Um, but we have no choice. We have to we have to do what we can do, and God blesses that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I? Yeah. Can I, can I also tweak? Go, yes, can, can I tweak your Toller own bar um, <laughs> analogy? Suppose <laughs> you, you saw them through the shop window, and people told you these are great, they're wonderful, but you never actually, you know, had the money. Oh, I don't, anyway, you never actually tasted one. But you do. What, what I've uh, I've kind of found pleasure recently in a, in a hobby of of uh, doing more cooking, and I, I go on and I go on online on these websites, and they say, "Here's a recipe to uh, uh, to, to reproduce like uh, the A1 steak sauce." I, I, lo- I love A1 steak sauce. Cause I like a good steak, and I and I found this recipe recently where here's how you can replicate A1 steak sauce. And I know it's not the same. If I had never had A1 steak sauce, but I'd seen it through the shop windows, and you know, Oliver Twist like leaned up against my nose, pressing against the glass, you know, tears glistening in the corner of my eyes. I wish I could have some A1. And then I go home and I and I find a recipe. You can approximate it. It's probably never exactly perfect, but it's um, but but it but it but it. I mean, you know, I mean, it does the job, right? It it does what I need to do. Um, and so you, mm-hmm. could, you know, you could, if you never had a Tolerone bar, just like if you'd never actually known Greek, you can still get, a, you know, you can you can get an, an approximation. And, and it's not like, it's not like, oh, we'll never really get close. I don't. I think that's not the way to look at it. We'll never really get close enough. I think we do. It's not like getting closer and closer is the ideal. There's something else that happens outside the actual text. That that desire to get back to the original text and if we can't get the precisely original text well, is, a, is a guaranteed recipe for discouragement and as part of what christians uh, uh, must feel i've felt this in the past where we say we can never really find the exact original autographs of the of the new testament scriptures but um but to do that that's that's the result of kind of a modern conception you know this odd fontes notion is has some has some merit but there's more than just the original text there's a long, long, millennia-old tradition of interpretation and understanding of both the scriptures and Homer um, that um, uh, um, I, I don't think uh, you know modern culture understands this so much as earlier uh, Christian culture did, old Western culture did. But that long tradition is part of uh, is, is part of the process by which we're given what was in the original text. So the value and the truth and the meaning is not just in the original text, but it's in the tradition of people. Um, uh, both closer to the original who did live in that culture and did understand the language, but later people also who receive an inheritance and continue to unpack and unfold and live by it and so on that were, that were, that were handed on. I like so that. I, I think I would, to, let me add just a little, if I may, to that, that yeah, or please, maybe go ahead. repeat almost what you're saying. What, what that original text did was it talked about something. So, so for example, when we read, in Acts 2, it describes Christ's ascent into heaven and the sending of the Holy Spirit and how God made him, actually his descent into Hades too, and then and his resurrection and ascent to heaven. And how God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay, now when Peter gave that talk, he didn't expect people to take his talk, memorize it, and do scholarly research about it. He expected them to do what they did. 
to repent because he was talking about something other than the words he was using. He was talking about the actual Christ who actually ascended into heaven. And then you go to Ephesians, and Paul tells us that Christ ascended through, through the, to the highest heaven so that he could fill all things. And, and it dawned on me not very long ago. It's amazing how slow I am in the uptake on these things. <laughs> it dawned on me that, that this Paul who's saying this about Jesus being ascended through the heavens, he was taken there. As he says, whether bodily I don't, or, or, or in the spirit, I don't know. God knows. But he in, in Paul's gospel writings, in Paul's epistle writings, and I mean gospel as in proclamation, not one of the four. Yeah. But in Paul's writings, he's not describing for us a theoretical dogma. He's describing for us what he has seen. Mm. He, he saw Christ seated, as Stephen did. He saw Christ seated at the right hand of God, above all the heavens. And he heard angels, <laughs> he heard angels glorifying God and praising him, mm. saying things like, holy, 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 but also hearing them say things that he's not allowed to repeat here on earth. So when we read Paul's writings, we, we, I, my mistake has been to almost turn them into study them like book reports and, and to, um, to, to compare note with note to see if I can make a logical explanation of what's going on, all of which is valuable, right? Sure. But what Paul's really doing is is telling us, I've seen the exalted Christ. This was this was the mystery revealed to me, and I'm telling you about an actual encounter. Mm-hmm. And what I'm telling you about is how you can be united to Christ and share in that encounter. And that reality is what's important. That thing that is being talked about is what the words are talking about. And so when we look at the Iliad or we look at the Bible or anything, the most important thing, imagine, I was thinking when you talked about the original text, imagine if we had those original documents, those original autographs, as uh-huh. we say. If we had them, they would be probably worshipped like like that serpent in, in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. The, you know, this, the, the one they... I, and God, perhaps for, I don't want to speak for God, but for perhaps for seeing that he's hidden them, he's taken, maybe they're in heaven, who knows, maybe they're in the ark up in heaven. But, but, but we don't have to deal with that temptation. What we do instead is we seek to be united to Christ so that like him in our union with him, we can ascend, we can, we can be humbled like him to obedient to the obedience of death, be crucified with him and be and be because of our union with him and that crucifixion, we can be exalted with him. And and that's not, again, that's not something Paul is talking about theoretically. It is something he has seen. And when I when that dawned on me, it was almost like this two-dimensional image suddenly became three-dimensional. I don't know, maybe that helps other people. But uh, back to the back to our discussion here, it's more about the Iliad. And and let me, if I can, let me just jerk well, ourselves back over because we both settled yeah. on that word heroes. And I was thinking, okay, translation, it's not just a simile, right? So we read the word heroes and when then we read it like modern readers. So I'm going to ask you, when you read the word heroes, you, you have a much better awareness of the ancient Greek and, and Homeric Greek and, and the tradition of the word. So help us out here, Wes. What does the word heroes mean when Homer uses the word? Because he uses it a lot. Does he just mean 
Iron Man and Spider Man and Superman, or what does he mean by a hero? No, well, in the first place, I, I don't know that it's true that I have a greater understanding of the stuff. I just read it a lot, like you do. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. I mean, my answer is I don't know. But, but um, um, I, I, I'm, you're fired. I'm, thank you. I'm fairly. I needed to be. I'm fairly confident that it's not what we mean by hero, and I and I take that as just kind of a given. I take it as kind of a given that whatever we think hero means or whatever whatever Homer meant by hero uh, is not the same as what the modern world uh, means. Uh, I think that's just a you know a prior assumption we can we can go on because culture has changed so much and because it's so easy, uh, it's so very easy uh, to read into ancient texts the modern meanings of the words that the translator used. So that so when Homer says, um, you know, uh, cast uh, cast into the house of Hades strong souls of heroes, hero own heroes is, is hero. When Homer used that word, the translator has to say, well, you know, my modern people don't know, my modern readers don't know Greek. I've got to choose the English word. So they choose hero, which actually is a derivative of the Greek word. Um, but uh, it's undergone such a change as culture has changed over the last two thousand eight hundred years that hero has a different feel to us. A different meaning, uh, um, denotatively, and a different feel, connotatively, than uh, heteros or heteroon does, you know, to the Greek. So we can we can take that as a given that it is different. So then the question still stands: What did he mean? And the answer is, I don't know. But <laughs> uh, I think I think we we could uh, uh, you and I, Andrew, we could ask ourselves this question: How would we discover the meaning? How would we learn what Homer's meaning was? so that we're not just importing ours and assuming we have it right. How would we discover that? Interesting. Four, four things immediately come to mind. One is the last thing you said. We just take ours and, and, and use it. And probably there's enough overlap that I, I wouldn't be committing intellectual suicide. Um, yeah, the second way, though, is I could look it up in a dictionary. Okay, I could look it up in, in any number of kinds of dictionaries. Yeah. I don't like doing that ever with any word, but that's because I'm just... Odyssean in that way. The third way is I could read books about, you know, essays on it, not just a dictionary, but but essays on how people have used it. Uh -huh. And the fourth is, since we have nothing but time on our hands, we could look up every single use of the word in the Iliad and the Odyssey and That'd derive from that what it means, which would take a very long time. And thank God there's community. But here's yeah. here's something funny. While you were talking, I was listening. Honest, I was. Every single word you said. But then I, while I was listening, I looked up one of my favorite books by Eva Brand, Homeric Moments. Uh -huh. And she actually has a chapter called Heroes. It's all of two pages. Well, it's actually one page and six lines. Uh -huh. Get this, Wes. This is going to amaze you if you don't know this already. I'm prepared. Only, only once is Odysseus called a hero in his own poem. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> nice. Think about that. Nice. In in tw in twenty four books, the hero of the poem is only called a hero once. <laughs> uh huh. Well, now that's amazing. Uh, that that actually that 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 has and 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 honest, I was listening to you. I promise. But that made me think of something that might actually be a fifth way to add to your list of four ways. The fifth way, okay. another way besides. Assuming our modern one do aside, looking up things in dictionaries and concordances and every every instance and so on. Uh, here's here's another way. Um, uh, uh, an example. Probably most of our readers know are familiar with uh, Strong's Concordance to the Bible, right? 
uh, James Strong, 19th century yeah. biblical scholar, yeah. and he did this massive concordance. It's still in print. You can get on Erdman's other places. Strong's concordance. It's like, you know, the first, I don't know if it's still considered definitive, but it probably is by most people. Well, um, well, there were no concordances like it before. So how did James Strong create his concordance? He had to read through the Bible countless times to find all the instances so that we don't have to read through the Bible countless times to find all the instances. So what is the difference between James Strong's, Strong's understanding of a word like sacrifice you know, or love uh, uh, after, uh, after reading through the Bible countless times to find all the instances to make his concordance? What's the difference between his understanding and mine when all I have to do is, is open up his book and go, oh, here's all the verses where it is? What is the differences, difference between our two experiences of the words in the in the scripture? I I, I think just ask. It depends. Well, it, it does, but I think my there's, guess, there's my, Go ahead. Go ahead. What are you thinking? Okay, I don't I don't know James Strong. My guess is that he did this because of an incredible devotion to the word of God. But it could be that he did it because somebody paid him. And so I think so. So yeah. a person could read the whole Bible and just do that as a detached exercise. And that would be catastrophic. But yeah. if he did it because he really wanted to understand and meditate and was participating in the act, then that would be phenomenal. Okay. I, I, would, I would agree. Um, but I would suggest that even if his intention was poor, there would be an effect on him that there would not be on me when I just look up a, a word in his book and the result of his labor. And that is, he he had uh, uh, he would have, uh, whether he wanted to or not, he would have become so familiar with the context of all of the scripture that the words would have far more meaning, a contextual meaning, uh, a rooted meaning, for him than I do when I just look up the verse or look up the look up the word in, in his concordance and I find the verse. I see the verse in a context, but he's read not just that verse, but the chapter it's in, the book it's in, the books before and after, the testament it's in, etc. So uh, he would have had a far more profound meaning, uh, um, regardless of his, of his intention, um, than I ever will, because of the way that he wrote the the concordance. So his efforts, um, and 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 you're right. If his intention was poor, uh, it would have been catastrophic for him spiritually. Uh, I have the feeling, knowing what little I know about Strong, that that wasn't the case. That he was a devout, a devout faithful pursuer of, of biblical knowledge for the sake of the love of Christ. Uh, but in any in any case, uh, he knows uh, that word far more intimately than I ever can, even though uh, his intention was to create a concordance for me. To use a concordance uh, uh, is to is to have a, a much shallower understanding of the word that you look up um, uh, than I would have if I did what he did. Uh, many years ago, I, uh, in, in fact, when I graduated from high school, I went for a year to a college called Multnomah School of the Bible in Portland. It's now Multnomah University. It's a, fa a fairly famous, well, um, I think fairly famous evangelical uh, college. Uh, and the founder of the college, one of the founders who's no longer with us, was a guy named John Mitchell. And w for whatever else is the case about my differences with Mitchell and his, and his doctrine, I, there's a, an immensely admirable thing about him. He became a Christian in his late teens in the prairies of S Saskatchewan back in the early 20th century. Uh, and as soon as he became a Christian, he knew nothing else except that the Bible is the Christian's book. And so he, uh, every time, every single time uh, he came up with a question, he would start at Genesis 1-1 and read to Revelation 22, whatever the last verse is, and see whatever the Bible had to say about it. Uh, how, how profound a knowledge <laughs> wow. of, 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 of words 
uh, and of the scripture in general he would have than I do if I just look up in a dictionary of concordance and you know find the right place to go to, you know, or do an online digital search of a text. So that's an older, untechnological, very pedestrian, very slow way of gaining knowledge. But sometimes the slow way is uh, is in, uh, the infinitely better way. Can I can I just throw in one more sometimes thing? Sometimes the slow way is the only way. It is. Uh, one, there's um, uh, a gentleman that um, uh, you are aware of, uh, Dr. Dale Grote, who's a professor of classics at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. He's a good friend of mine, and he's uh, mm-hmm. uh, his, his, one of his claims to fame is that he wrote the study guide to the famous Wheelock's um, uh, Latin text. Uh, but in a conversation I had with Dr. Grote fairly recently, uh, he said something that floored me and I think is, is so pertinent. He said, one reason to study the classical languages is to slow down learning. Yes. And that that is what would happen if I said I'm not going to use the concordance. I'm going to look up. Uh, I'm going to look up every place, whether it's translation or the original. But I'm going to I'm going to read Homer and find every place where the word hero is used. Instead of using a concordance, I'll just read the text over and over again. That might be inefficient. It might be unpragmatic. Yes. It might not be a very practical way of doing it. But man, would I have a different understanding of the word hero? Yeah, it achieves something different, Wes. It, 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 it's, it's not a question of efficiency. It's a question of possibility. Exactly. An efficient, yeah. an efficient approach to reading can do certain things and cannot do other things. Yeah. And, the, and anybody, anybody who's listening to this almost certainly is interested in something that Homer's written, maybe, maybe has read or, or is, you know, I'm afraid of reading or whatever, but probably, um, has participated in some discussion with other people about Homer's writings or about great books in some context. Yeah. And, and you know that when you have these conversations with other people, something happens that, that it doesn't happen if you only talk by yourself, right? If you only read by yeah. yourself. I remember as a kid how mad that made me. I used to think, <laughs> okay, I'd, I'd read this text and, and I'd say, I get this, right? And then I'd go to school or, or in youth group, I'd go to Bible study and I'd get it. And then somebody would say something I never thought of, and it, and it irritated me. How dare you? Now, it wasn't really that. It was, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you've thought of something I've never thought of, it almost destabilized me as a young kid. Yeah. It was like, okay, then, then I, don't, I don't know what I'm talking about if I don't think of everything. What a great discovery. Mm. <laughs> so, so, you know, that, so that, some, I mean. Andrew, that, that happens uh, every time you and I get together and talk on this podcast. You say things, and I go, wait a second, what? I never thought of that. So you're, Well, you're, I do have the advantage I, of having a totally dysfunctional mind and that, that <laughs> I, I usually think of things <laughs> that nobody ever should have thought of. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but yeah, the, and, and, say, and vice versa, and that's the glory of, of thinking about life with other people, right? There's something destabilizing for it the is. person who needs everything locked down. And I get that. I'm an executive in a business. I need things locked down. But you also have to be able to, to have things moving because life is. You can't ignore the fact that life is moving. It's bigger than our minds can grasp. This is also There's joy in this that. Is, this is a deeply connected to something we were talking about earlier. That it's not just about trying to understand what hero means in the Homeric text or any other word. Uh, but there's the whole history, the tradition of Homeric love and study between Homer and us that we have to pay attention to. Because that's part of the discussion that we can listen to and have our eyes opened and say, oh, man, I never thought of that when I just sat down and read and read Homer. If I just do, you know, um, uh, you know, sola homera and read only Homer, 
I'm going to get a lot out of it. <laughs> Pardon me. Uh, but if I read the whole tradition between Homer and me, my eyes will be opened by what Virgil said, by what Aristophanes said, by what uh, Eustathius, the Bishop of Thessalonica in 1095 said, and by what the Renaissance humanists said, and by what recent scholars have said. My eyes are opened by this discussion the same way that you and I open each other's eyes, and that, and that uh, you know, going to school or Bible study and other people pop up with opinions, they open our eyes and we say, wait a second, I never, I never thought of that. That's that's part of the of the of the reality of the meaning of Homer. And that Wes, it's all just part of it's just part of this wonderful discussion that we all get to participate in, and it never ends because there's always more to discover, and therefore it is, you guessed it, a perpetual feast. And so with that, <laughs> I'm going to end this talk because our time's up. <laughs> but I want to I want to pick up this matter of heroes again as soon as we start the next okay. talk. So Wes, thank okay. you. That was this was really this was really interesting. <laughs> I hope our, I hope our listeners were were, were uh, tolerant <laughs> of the whole thing. So thanks for listening, Wes. Let's let's meet again soon, and we'll have episode three of our second season of a perpetual feast. Good. I look forward to it, Andrew. Thank you. May the Lord be with you, and with you, my friend. Mm-hmm.